My name's Mark, and we're going to talk about broken relationships this morning. And, uh, you know, we're laughing about this crazy video here that turns a parking lot into a demolition derby. And the truth is, uh, when it comes to broken relationships, fractured relationships, they're really no laughing matter. They're the stuff of great pain. Because those relationships are those relationships that once were really tight, really close. Sometimes they were family, sometimes they were marital relationships, and, and now they've been ripped apart, and it gives lots of pain. Anybody here ever had a strained or a broken relationship? Raise your hand. Anybody here? Yeah, that's like all of us, right? So take, take note and be encouraged to know that you're not alone here today if you find yourself going, man, this is so hard. Be encouraged to, to think of this, that Jesus Christ... The perfect son of God who did everything right every day of his life. He knew all about broken relationships. There had to be strained relationships in his family when they come and try and get him and thinking, man, he's lost his mind. We've got to help this guy. Take him home. There's some big time fractured relationships at the very core of leadership. So you've got Peter who denies him. And we see that relationship get reconciled. And that's cool. But we realize that the relationship with Judas... It never reconciles, does it? Nothing Jesus did wrong. To the very end, he calls him friend. He leaves the door wide open for reconciliation. But the fact is, Jesus left this earth, and there still were irreconcilable relationships in his life. So today what we're going to do is, we're going to talk about this really important subject, and we're going to go to the Old Testament to talk about it. Because these relationships, they're, they're not only in our homes, they're in our extended families, they follow us to work, sometimes at the school, at school and in our, in our interactions there with friends. It, it happens in our neighborhoods between races and nations. It's all around us. But there's some stuff to learn from the story of Joseph. Wonderful biblical truths that we need to get a hold of today and apply them into our own fractured relationships. So Genesis 37, that would be the first book in the Bible. Chapter 37 And we'll start our reading in verse 1. As you're turning there, remember now, Abraham's the father of faith, right? His son is Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. This is Jacob's son, his favorite son, the one born to his favorite wife, Rachel. Okay? We pick it up in verse 1. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the son of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Not a good idea for a younger brother. Now Israel loved, and Israel is the same name for Jacob, okay? Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Start reading the story and it gets worse because Joseph starts having these dreams. And these dreams seem to indicate that somewhere down the future, his family's actually going to bow down and pay homage to him. And they're incensed by this. One day you pick up the account in, in verse 19, Joseph has gone out to look for his brothers in Shechem. He can't find him there. He's sent to Dothan. And we pick up the account as they see him walking up to him. Verse 19. Here comes that dreamer. They said to each other, Come now. 
Let's kill him and throw him one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, Reuben's the oldest son, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Now, you don't have to have a psychology or sociology degree to figure out this thing's broken, this family, these relationships that Joseph and his brothers have with each other, completely fractured. And we can only imagine what it was like when Joseph quickly found out it wasn't a joke. It was for real. They were selling him for 20 pieces of silver, and he's off across the desert to a place he's never been to hear a language he's not spoken, probably realizing never again to return home. I mean, who's going to know where he is? The brothers certainly aren't going to tell him. And you pick up the story in chapter 39. 38's kind of an interlude here that sets up 39. But 39, we realize that Joseph then is put up on the, on the stock, so to speak, and he's sold as a piece of meat a slave, to none other than the captain of the bodyguard, Pharaoh's bodyguard, a guy named Potiphar. And the text says that God was with him and he succeeded, succeeded in everything that he did. And, and Potiphar took note of it. And so he said, hey, listen, man, I want you to be in charge of everything that's in my household. And he was. God was with him. Mrs. Potiphar looked on Joseph and he was handsome, the scripture says, and she tried to seduce him and he would have nothing of it. Day after day, she would ask the question. And day after day, he refused. Then one day, she grabs him by the tunic and says, come lie with me. And we know what he did. He no longer reasoned. He, said, how can, he earlier said, how can I do this evil, wicked thing and sin against God? He said, I can't do this. Your, your husband's given everything in this house under my charge. How, how could I do this and sin against God? This time he's not reasoning. This time he's running. You know, some of us are in temptation way when it comes to sexual temptation right now. We're reasoning way too long. And your reasoning is leading to rationalization and you're going to go down. The Bible says flee immorality. And I don't know if he understood there was a weakness at this point in his own life where he says, this is no time for talking. I got to get out of here. And ran he did. She's left with his tunic in, his, in her hands and she's furious and she screams out. The servants come running and she says, this, this, this slave has come to mock me and he tried to rape me. And the next thing you know it, 
Potiphar throws Joseph in a jail. The story again says that God was with him. And just as he had prospered Joseph in Potiphar's house, he prospers him in a prison. And so the warden takes note and he makes him in charge of all the other prisoners. And it's in that prison there in Egypt that he meets two important people. One was Pharaoh's baker. I can only imagine what kind of bread he baked to get into jail. I mean, it must have been really bad bread. And then there was the cupbearer. And they had dreams. They didn't know what the dreams meant, but they told the dreams to Joseph. And Joseph told him, this is what it means. Mr. Baker, he's going he's gonna to do away with you. Mr. Cupbearer, he's going to restore you back to his service. Sure enough, just as Joseph had said, the baker dies, the cupbearer goes into the palace. And on his way in, Joseph said, hey, man, put in a good word for me. Remember what I did. You know, if you get the chance, see if you can get me out of here. The text says two years went by. He doesn't hear anything. Two years went by. Well, what's going on in his mind? What's going on in his heart relative to these brothers who sold him for 20 pieces of silver? He gets his break later on in chapter 41 when Pharaoh has a dream. It's a bad dream. It has to do with cows. There's some fat cows. There's some skinny cows. And he's troubled. He hasn't a clue what these cows are about. Ask the wise men. They don't know what it's about. And all of a sudden, the cupbearer goes, hey, I remember. There's this guy. I met him in jail. He told me my dream perfectly. You ought to talk to him. So talk to him, he did. Pharaoh brings in Joseph, cleans him up, tells him his dream. Joseph said, seven fat cows? That's seven years of plenty. You're going to have an abundance of crops. Seven lean cows? That's famine. And those seven lean cows that ate up the fat cows, that's just saying that Seven years of famine are going to devour all the things that you've gotten in the year of plenty. And Pharaoh looks at him, he says, for the next 14 years, this is the lot we're facing as a nation, and I need you to manage this so that we have enough in abundance saved away to make it through the lean years. So he's elevated to the most influential place in all of Egypt, the second in command. Nobody over him except for Pharaoh. And we note this. How did he get to the palace. How did he get to that position? He had to go through where? Prison. He had to go through something really hard. And it's just like God to do that. And you're in a hard place right now. You go, what in the world could God be doing? The scriptures say this, for God's children, all things work together for good. It doesn't say all things are good. It says they work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And the good that happens in that is God forms in us his character as we go through the crushing hard times of life. And that's going on in Joseph's life. And we know it because in chapter 42, his brothers show up. Because the famines hit where they live. And now we note, when Joseph has his dream, when Pharaoh has his dream interpreted by Joseph, he was 30 it would have been 13 years. Now the seven years of plenty have, have gone, and it's been 20 years since his brothers threw him in the pit when he sees them for the first time. And he can't believe it. There they are, his brothers, all 10 of them. Benjamin's back home. And the text says he saw them and recognized them, but they didn't recognize him because he was all up in his 
dressed up in his Egyptian garb, speaking Egyptian. They didn't have a clue who he was, but he knew, and he treats them harshly. He accuses them of being spies. He throws them in prison for three days. He's heard that they have an aging father back home and a younger brother. And he says, here's the deal. I think you're spies. You say you're telling the truth. Well, you can prove it right here. You go back, you get your younger brother. You bring him back here. But I'm holding your brother Simeon right here. And before their very eyes, he was bound up just like Joseph was and carried off into prison. He says, you come back with your young brother. You can get Simeon back. So they go home. They tell their father, Jacob, here's the deal. Simeon's back. Simeon's where? Yeah, he's back in Egypt. Jacob's going, I've lost Joseph to a wild animal. Simeon's in Egypt. And you're telling me the only way to get Simeon out is to take Benjamin, my youngest beloved son, the only living son of my dear wife, Rachel, who died giving him birth? No way. No way. And that's where he was until the grain ran out. And then left with no other alternative, he said to the boys, we'll go back. But load up with gifts. See if we make this right, because... This isn't good what's going on over there. So they go back. They go back a second time with Benjamin. There's a big feast. There's all kinds of emotion welling up in in Joseph's heart, but he doesn't say anything yet. He fills up their sacks and he sends them back home, but he plants Pharaoh's silver cup in Benjamin's sack. They get down the road a few miles and he chases them down with his men who say, hey, one of you have stolen Pharaoh's silver cup, the one he drinks from, the one he divines from. No, we didn't, we didn't take his cup. We're not thieves. We wouldn't do that. Hey, if you find his cup in any of our bags, we'll become your slave. And Pharaoh's deputy said, well, good enough. You become a slave then. Open your sacks. And Benjamin couldn't believe it. We're right there up to the top. There's a silver cup, and he holds it up to the disbelief and amazement of his brothers. What is going on here? And they're taken back into Egypt. And before Joseph, they fall down before him, pleading for their brother's life, acknowledging that together they will become his servants and slaves. And he says, no, I'll have none of that. I just want the guy who stole the cup. And look in chapter 45. It's it's, it's too intense for Joseph. He can no longer keep secret of his identity. Verse 1, then Joseph could no longer control himself. Before all his attendants, he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, He said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Verse 14. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterwards, his brothers talked with him. And so we're seeing after 22 years now, these relationships coming back together. That which was completely fractured, coming back together in this amazing, miraculous, beautiful way. And we want to just take note and say, how did that happen? How did that happen? Because we want to know how it can happen for us. 
because that, that weeping so loud that everybody could hear it, we know what that's about. It's about all this tension that we feel that, that, that just is still resting right here over this relationship that I can't make right. How, how do I experience that kind of release and peace? And how can we be reconciled? And we look at what happened. How did this fractured mess get put together? The first thing we acknowledge is this. God and his sovereignty brought them back together. What does sovereignty mean? It means God's in control of all things. And God was in control of all things. He was in control of the famine that reached Jacob's family. He was in control of Joseph being thrown into a prison to meet the cupbearer so that he could interpret the dream, so that he could be promoted to the number two position in the whole kingdom of Egypt. God was in control of everything. And it's important for us to remember that as we work hard to bring reconciliation to these fractured relationships, that if God isn't in it, it is never going to happen. And some of you know it real well. Because it's like Joseph for you. It's been 20 years. It's been 10 years. It's been a long time. And you've tried everything, and it's still messed up. It's still broken. We note that God in his sovereignty brought them back together. And that's huge for us to just say, God, as I'm praying for this relationship and my part in getting this thing back together, I'm just saying, without you, you're the peacemaker, Jesus, the Prince of Peace. You got to do it. You got to do it. It's got to tee up our prayers for these broken relationships. We go to God first. He's the one who can bring reconciliation. Then we note, the second important thing is the brothers took responsibility. They acknowledged their wrong. You go back to chapter 42, verse 21. This is in the first visit, and they don't think Joseph can understand them because he's always been speaking to them through an interpreter. And here's what they say in 21. They said to one another, Surely we're being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. And throughout the story, there's this revelation that these brothers really have changed. Even though there's some of the old stuff that's lingering and mixed in with it, they have changed. And they are acknowledging the wrong that they have done. This is huge for us as we understand that when we've been hurt and when a relationship is fractured, it's so easy to have our first attention and focus be on what this person's done to me. And it's really important to realize for some of us in specific kinds of situations that there's a fractured relationship in your life that is so hard and hurts so bad. And you know what? It's nothing you wanted. And it's nothing you did. And you've worked hard to pursue it and the other person is unwilling. That's possible. That's possible. That's Jesus and Judas' relationship. But it's important to note this, that the first place to look is not at the other person, but it's at myself. What have I done to contribute to this fractured relationship? It's the logging principle that we get in Matthew 7 when Jesus says, hey, don't look at the speck in your brother's eye when you've got a log in your own eye. And you're hunting for specks and little pieces of sawdust and you've got, you got a stinking telephone pole coming right out of your head. So pay attention to the telephone pole, the log. Take responsibility is what the word is telling us. Look within 
God, what's my part? Show me my part because I want to make it right. I want to own up to what I've done. Here's some barriers to doing just that. Pride, where we won't admit that we are wrong. Man, we kind of specialize in that one. Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. There's denial. We won't acknowledge it. There's no problem. There's no, there's no broken relationship here. Everything's fine. And there's blame. It's not my fault. We make excuses for our actions. We blame somebody else. We shift the focus to them off of ourselves. We need to take responsibility for our part and repent. We need to confess it. We need to truly be sorry, not just in the words that we say, but that there's got to be genuine regret, and that regret manifests in a change of behavior that we truly do pursue and ask for their forgiveness. That's what's going on here. Sometimes our acknowledgement of wrong comes when somebody points it out because we didn't realize it. Matthew 18 speaks of this very thing. Verses 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, the leadership of the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector, someone who's not a follower of Christ. The scriptures talk about our responsibility. And Jesus minds, reminds us that, hey, don't just wait for someone else to point it out. You guys who've played, um, you know, basketball out on the court, you know, sometimes we call our own fouls and sometimes we have somebody else. He, he's saying, well, wait a minute. Don't just wait for somebody else. Call your own foul. Call your own foul. Come clean. That's what he's talking about. And he says this in Matthew 5, 23 and 24. We ought not to wait. We ought to make it right if we know it's not. He says this, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, here's what you ought to do. Leave your gift in the front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled. That's what Christ tells us to do. And the scripture says this, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Write that verse down. Romans 12, 18. Huge. Let me say it again. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, in other words, it's going to take two to reconcile, but you do everything you can to get there, live at peace with everyone. Or as Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 3, make every effort to pursue peace. And here's what we've got to remember when we ask for forgiveness, when we confess our part in this fractured relationship, is that you can be forgiven And that doesn't erase consequences. You can have God's forgiveness and you can have that person's forgiveness, but it doesn't mean that you just etch a sketch it away and it's gone. You live with the consequences and the consequences God will use to remind us of grace, of grace. Well, what's the third thing? How they get this mess put back together? Yeah, they understood that God did it. The brothers took responsibility for their part in repentance, and then Joseph forgave. Joseph acted with mercy and extended forgiveness. And if we think about that, 
we want to think about there's a couple different faces and looks to extending forgiveness. One is where we overlook an offense. Maybe it's a minor deal. We're not going to bring it to the, to the forefront. We're not going to make a big deal about it. We're just going to cover it with mercy. We're not sweeping it under the carpet as if it didn't happen. We acknowledge it did happen, but we're covering it with mercy. Proverbs 19.11 speaks to this very thing. A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. Sometimes extending forgiveness means we extend forgiveness to a person who's wronged us and refuses to acknowledge that they've had any part in it. And maybe they're proud and maybe they're stubborn. Maybe they're denying it. Maybe they're rationalizing. Whatever it is, they may no no longer be living. What are you to do? There are some people who will have us believe that you ought to just kind of forgive conditionally. So take a verse like, Luke chapter 17, verse 3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, then forgive him. And the syllogism then is, if he doesn't repent, you don't, what? Forgive. That, I think, is a very scary tack to take. Number one, it's not the tack Jesus took. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. What was he talking about? Who is he talking about? The people who are going to what? Crucify him. Any account in the scriptures that say, and all of a sudden they had a change of mind. They're saying, Jesus, forgive us. Any account of that in the scriptures? Absolutely not. He's extending forgiveness to those who aren't even asking for it. Now, to be sure, we're not going to get to reconciliation without them doing that. But the question is, what do you do with the person who's wronged you that won't own up to it? And I'm telling you, the scripture says you forgive them, and here's why. That when that hurt comes, it's always moving this way and this way. When they sin, they sin against God. Their relationship with God has been separated by that sin. That's what sin does. And that's why there's fractured relationships here, because it separates. It separates them with God. You and I can't do anything about their their relationship with God. That's what Jesus did. That's what the cross is about, making peace with God. But what happened is, when they sinned against God, they also sinned against us, and that brought a lot of pain into our life. And that pain needs to be forgiven. And that word means to send it back. Send it back. Why are we sending it back? Well, we're sending it back because the Scriptures say if we don't, something starts to grow in our heart. It's a little seed. That seed is called bitterness. And Hebrews 12, 15 says... You know, don't miss the grace of God and allow this root of bitterness to grow up in your life and cause trouble to your life and defile your life. And what happens is, if we don't send it away and if we aren't committed to keep sending it away, this little thing takes root and it grows. It's a little sapling. You might call it a little water birch and it's a little thing and then it's a little bigger thing. It's a maple and then it's a bigger thing. It's, a, it's an oak and then it's a cottonwood and all of a sudden it morphs into a sequoia. I mean, it's big enough to drive a car through. You know what I'm talking about? It's so big that everywhere you go in your life, you keep, you keep bumping into it. It's, it's one of those relationships that you, you have those friends that you kind of talk to once a year. Every time you talk to them, they, they note that, you know You just keep talking about the same thing. That sequoia of bitterness that's rooted in that fractured relationship. And you know what God's saying this morning? He doesn't want you to live like that anymore. You're not meant 
to do this. And the thing that you thought would be good to hold on to for a while as leverage or whatever twisted way we thought it would be for our good to hang on to bitterness, all of a sudden we realize that bitterness is eating us away from the inside out and it's killing us. It's a cancer. And so the guy came up to me this morning and said, yeah, it's the first thought I have in the morning. It's when I start daydreaming in the car. It's that relationship. It's that relationship. And bitterness is right here. Right here, he said. And God says, I I don't want you to live like that. You don't have to live like that. And what breaks us free from that is forgiveness. So remember, forgiveness is something you do for yourselves, not just for other people. Remember, this is a decision of your will. It's not about your emotions, whether you feel like it, because let's face it, a lot of times we're not going to feel like it. And understand it's a process, not a point in time. So how do you know that in that fractured relationship right now, you are extending mercy and grace and forgiveness? How do you know? Here's a great quote from Thomas Watson, the great Puritan preacher. Here's what he said. We know we're forgiving when we strive against all thoughts of revenge, when we'll not do our enemies mischief, but wish well to them. When we, won't grieve at their, when we grieve at their calamities, we pray for them, we seek reconciliation with them and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve, to help them. Watson is saying, look, if we're a person who's thinking about and pursuing revengeful thoughts and actions, that's not forgiveness. If we're wishing harm to come to them, that's not forgiveness. If, if we go... Man, that is so great that God just wasted them. Praise God. That's not forgiveness. When we curse them, that's not forgiveness. He says we're to pray for them. Jesus said, you you pray for those and bless those who persecute you. Here Here is something that you need to do this week for that fractured relationship. This person who once was your friend, who's now become your enemy, is you love them through prayer. Jesus said, love your enemies. You cannot believe the release as you start praying specifically for that person, for their relationships, their work, their health, their relationship with God. You pray specifically for them and you will find this great release as bitterness starts to to move out of your heart, seeking reconciliation all the time. And the question you gotta ask is, how did Joseph do it? And, and, you know, we think about what we've gone through. We can only imagine what it was like. I mean, we know the end of the story. He's living it out and having a clue where it's going to end. We can only imagine what it was like in the temptation to nail his brothers. How did he ever do it? How do you forgive your brothers who sold you as a slave? I think the text gives us a clue. There's a repeated phrase in the story of Joseph that's repeated four times that I think helps you understand how this guy do what he did. It's the phrase, God was with him. God was with him. God was with him. And as God was with him, we can understand that Joseph understood that, that God was with him. That's why he could say to Potiphar's wife, how can I do this great thing and sin against God? His desire was to please the one who was with him. How could he forgive his brothers? Because God was with him. How could he trust God when things seemed to get worse and worse and worse? Because God was with him. And he saw him in the details of life and he believed it. When everything around him 
may have pointed otherwise. In Genesis 39, 20, 21, we read this about God being with him. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eye of the prison warden. And the kindness of God changed him so that he was able to extend the kindness of God to his brothers. You know, if we haven't received the kindness of God and forgiveness, we're not positioned to do that for anyone else. And the rest of the story is that the brothers who couldn't speak a kind word to him, Genesis 37, 4, have Joseph speaking kindly to him at the end of Genesis 50. Look at this. This is really a wild story. So their dad, Jacob's, just died. In Genesis 50, pick it up at verse 15. Here's what happens. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph didn't say, those scoundrels are up to it again. They're scheming and making up these things. Dad never said that. He would have told me. He didn't do that. What did he do? He wept. He wept that there's still stuff going on as they're coming out of this. And his brothers come in, verse 18. They throw themselves down before him. We're your slaves. How ironic is that? We are your slaves. The one who sold him to slavery. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Does vengeance belong to me? No. Goes on to say this. You intended to harm me. He doesn't sugarcoat it, does he? But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. He spoke kindly to them because the God of kindness was with him. And he's able to speak kindly to the brothers who hated him because he'd had experience with God that changed his heart so that kindness could flow from his heart. And that's what it's all about, the transforming power of God's love of the cross in your life to bring healing to that fractured relationship. And maybe some of you are thinking, I I don't think it can happen to mine. I don't think it can happen to my marriage. I don't think it can happen to my relationship. Well, I want you to meet Roger and Gail Beaver because they're going to tell you the story of God's grace in their life. Come on up, Roger and Gail. And as they do, you're going to hear about how God did it. So let's leave it to the Beavers to give us the rest of the story. Good morning. For you that don't know, this is Gail, and I'm Roger, the beaver. How many of you remember watching Leave it to the Beaver? Quite a few of you. You know, I've watched a lot of those movies, and I was just really surprised that they had this perfect life. They never argued. I don't ever remember them arguing. Everything seemed to go well for them. So this morning, we want to share with you the differences between the Cleavers and the Beavers. Roger and I were married in 1978. He was 19, I was 17. To complicate it even more, I was pregnant. Neither of us grew up with healthy Christian um, 
examples of, of a marriage in our lives. So it didn't take long before we started having difficulty in our own marriage. Roger was drinking considerably and partying all the time. I was depressed, and my self-esteem was just about gone. And I wondered how I could ever get out of the marriage. I considered all my options, even suicide. Heidi and Heather were three and five when I decided this was no way to live, and I was scared for how they would grow up with parents that were always fighting and Roger's drinking. Or what if I wasn't even in the picture at all? What would happen to them then? I was so afraid of what he might do, but even more scared for my girls. Once after a really bad fight, I left. The girls and I started a new life in another town. I filed for divorce. We were estranged for a few months, and I heard through mutual friends that Roger had sunk to even greater depths. A few more months passed before we finally agreed on child custody terms. I signed the final papers, and my attorney sent them to Roger's attorney. Nothing happened. We waited. My attorney informed me he called Roger's attorney, and the papers he had sent never made it. I remember this was in the days before faxes. Somehow those papers were lost, mysteriously lost. This gave Roger and I just enough time to start talking. Roger began to see he was losing his family and wanted to do whatever it took to start over. So I laid out the terms, my terms. We would move to Madison. I had already planned to go back to school to finish, finish my post-high school education. We would go to counseling, something that Roger had flatly said no to before, and lastly, he would stop drinking. And I agreed to all those terms. So we moved to Madison in 1984. And we went to counseling, just as agreed, and started working on better communication. And I started classes at MATC. Then Roger started drinking again. The old patterns started all over. But this time, we were farther from the friends and family that supported us. By now, the counselor we had and Roger trusted couldn't see us any longer. And Roger didn't want to look for another. He thought we had gone through all the counseling we needed and that we were done. I, on the other hand, knew that it was still bad. I read every self-help book I could and poured myself into work and activities with the girls, trying to leave Roger out of the picture to do whatever he wanted, working second shift, overtime, hunting, fishing, out with the guys, whatever it took. As long as I could do my own thing and he did his, we lived distant lives, but we lived with a little more peace. We did attend a local church during all this time with very social activities and but it did not have much deep spiritual teaching. We were both searching for something to fill a void, but neither of us knew what that was. It was then that I met a friend that saw a need in my life and shared the gospel with me. I had questions like never before. I was hungry for more. I started attending a Bible study and learning things that I never knew in all the years of going to church, even teaching Sunday school. Roger got mad because I didn't want to go to our friendly social church any longer, but... I needed to go where they really taught the Bible. He became sullen and refused to go to any other churches with me and the girls, or even that church for that matter. Eventually, he started showing up, though, for dessert that always followed our weekly Bible studies. He got curious and started coming to these studies then. I came to faith in May of 1990. Roger came to faith in April of 1991, and it seemed like overnight our relationship was different. At the point that we were reconciled to Christ and what he did on the cross, we were truly reconciled to each other. It was only when we brought God into our marriage and sought him that we were able to put each other before ourselves and learn what God's design for marriage is. Through a special gift from God, Roger completely stopped his excessive drinking and smoking, choosing to go to Bible studies instead of a bar. 
I learned what the Bible says about the role of a wife to her husband, which meant I had to lay down all the self-help stuff that I had been clinging to. How to let my husband be the head of the home, which up until now he had severely neglected his role. I had to let go of running the home and trust that Roger would turn to God and make wise decisions. And I had to leave the outcome in God's hands. We both had to forgive each other for the many past sins and hurts we caused each other. We repented to God and to one another and began to see real change for the first time ever. We had a trust for each other that we had never had before. So the couple that you see standing here today are much different than the couple married 30 years ago. We have been reconciled now for 17 years, and each year we grow stronger and more in love. God continues to bless our marriage and provide ways for us to continue to grow closer to him and to each other. You know, Gail and I, thank you. As Gail and I look back over um, God's involvement in our life, we, we, um, we see his hand involved in all of it, from the time that we met to the time the divorce papers disappeared to the time that God used those great desserts to take me to Bible study. So as, we, uh, as all these things have happened in our life, it was always easy to ask why. Why did this happen? We still ask why. Why does things go that way? But Gail and I have found um, the answer in his Bible, or in his word. It is, comes from Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster. To give you a future and a hope. When you pray, I will be found by you. If you look for me in earnest, you will find me when you seek me. God's in the details. Papers lost in the mail. God's in the details of your life. And I don't know if you heard what Gail said. She said, we never really truly reconciled to each other until we were reconciled to who? To Christ, to God. And so I would just say to you, look, you're trying to work it out this way. If it's not right this way, it's never going to happen. And if you've got God's forgiveness through Christ then metering it out this way is never an option. So Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called sons and daughters of God. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that for those this morning who are here and they, um, they don't have peace with you, that you'd grant them faith to believe that your son died for all the stuff that severed that relationship. And in placing their faith in you, would you give them peace and remove all that guilt and move them forward with grace and mercy to now pursue peace with all of the relationships they have. Lord, help some of us here who have relationships where we wonder if it'll ever get right. Help us with those relationships that have hurt us deeply to be freed from bitterness and to move forward in grace. We pray it in Christ's name, amen.